Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. I, I knew to expect some jellyfish, but and I thought in like this weird sadistic way that it would actually give me like a little adrenaline shot and like something else to think about or whatever. Because you know it's like a bee sting. You, you you know you can handle it, but it's like whoa. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tourists from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In episode 21 of Bike Tour Adventures, I'm speaking with Rob Lee, an adventurer that just completed the Ultimate World Triathlon. The Ultimate World Triathlon is different than a regular triathlon in that it involves three distinct events that would be completed in the same year. This isn't an endeavor that your average triathlete can do over a weekend, but is something that takes a massive amount of preparation and mental fortitude, as well as a little bit of crazy. Today's episode won't solely be focused on bike touring, as I do want to talk about all three events he completed and discuss how he prepared and planned for them. Rob has dedicated this Ultimate World Triathlon to gender equality, with the realization that gender bias is still a thing, and a lot more needs to be done to address the inequalities that women face every day. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. So let's let's start by uh, seeing what exactly is the Ultimate World Triathlon. Yeah, it was basically just a kind of self-contrived, um, uh, basically adventure that I came up with. Um, it was probably about at this point. It was about four years ago. I had some injuries. Uh, I used to do a lot of triathlon and some different sports, but um, I, I had some injuries, and I lived at the doctor's office um, to see if I needed to have ankle surgery. And uh, the doctor came in and said, "Yeah, you've got some, you know, some issues here. We need to address with surgery." And he said, "Technically speaking." Um, you know, you shouldn't, or medically speaking, you shouldn't really be running anymore. Okay. And so I immediately thought, gosh, I need like a new goal. And so I, um, I, I came up with uh, swimming the English Channel is how this whole thing started. Um, and so I, I really knew nothing about the English Channel, but I came from a swimming background, and so it was just this kind of thing out there that I thought could be really fun. And once I started um, researching it, I found out that it was called um, the Everest of swimming. And oh, okay. Everest was kind of on my, we'll call it bucket, bucket list as well. It was on, on the list of maybe something I'd like to do sometime. And so I, got, I thought, gosh, I wonder if anybody's ever done both, if there's all these kind of like 
um, you know, there's like blogs online and websites and people try to compare which one is harder and I thought maybe I can try to do them both and compare. But it, uh, when I researched them, I found out that there was about, I think at the time there was eight people who had, um, who had done both. But they were all like at least a year or like five or ten years apart. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll try to do it in the same year so that I can really have a comparison between the two. So that, that's how the part of the Athlon started and then I thought, well, gosh, if if the um, Everest is kind of my run and I've got my swim and I come from a triathlete background, mm -hmm. I need to add in a bike. And I've always wanted to bike across the country. So uh, I thought, well, let's let's throw that into the mix and um, try to do it all in one uh, one calendar year. So that's how the Ultimate World Triathlon came to be and evolved from there. That's really cool. Yeah, I guess swimming the English Channel, how, how far across is that? Yes, the crow flies, it's 21 miles at its shortest distance. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, that doesn't mean you're going to land at the shortest distance and then also you have tides pushing you one way or the other so when I finished um, you, you, they've got a ton of different rules that we can get into a little bit but um, I couldn't even wear a watch um, as one of the rules and so uh, uh, my wife who was on the boat the support boat with me um, she had the watch and she started it and that watch said 28 miles when we were all said and done um, so you, you definitely get pushed around a little bit and uh, you do kind of a big S curve across the channel as you go okay so where are you from in the US so I was born and raised in Park City Utah and um, I ended up going to college in California at UC okay. Davis. I actually swam out there, so definitely have a swimming background. Uh, but after college and a little bit of traveling, that kind of thing, I landed back here in Park City, and that's uh, where I still live and work. Okay, I hear really, really good things about Utah, and especially mountain biking in Utah. Yeah, it's a pretty special place, and um, I, I definitely grew up uh, mountain biking all over the time and all the time. There's, I don't know the current count, but it's something like over 400 miles of single track around Park City. So oh, wow. um, as much as I ride, I can pretty much go out any day, and if I just kind of veer off course on purpose, I can probably find a new trail to, to check out. Oh, neat. It's, it's awesome here. All right, so let's talk about each individual event you did. You started with the, the Mount Everest climb. So how did you prepare for this? I mean, in some fashion, I, I think I've been preparing for, you know, a decade or in some way like my entire life as far as climbing bigger and bigger mountains. Okay. I, I guess it kind of goes back a little bit to the first really big mountain I did um, was Aconcagua, the highest mountain in uh, South America. And it's just under 7,000 meters, 22,841 feet. Okay. Um, and so... I I did that, and I, I felt pretty good um, for that album. That doesn't mean you feel good, but I felt like my body was performing pretty well compared to others on the trip. And, uh, you know, I attributed that to different things. I, I feel like I was in pretty good shape, but I also grew up, and like I said, I was born and raised here in Park City, which we're, we're just under 7,000 feet here. So I think maybe, you know, living at elevation certainly helped. Um, but that I think that kind of gave me the bug. I'd certainly done other mountains before that, but never anything, you know, to that size. Um, and then I also climbed Denali a couple years after that. But when we really started looking at Everest as a possibility, I uh, we signed up for Choyu. Uh, my when I say we, I'm talking about my now wife Caroline mm -hmm. and I. And so, uh, Choyu is the sixth highest mountain in the world, and it's um, only like 20 miles as the crow flies from Everest. Um, oh. So we signed up for that in, last fall, so just over a year ago, uh, 2018, as basically a training mountain on an 8,000 meter peak um, to see how I did at, at those kind of elevations because. 
um, every little bit uh, at those kind of elevations makes a pretty big difference. So we did show you, um, and actually Caroline proposed to me at the at the summit of show you uh, just over a year ago. So that was a pretty special mountain to do. But we also got a look at Everest, and it was kind of like, yeah, that's that's something we want to try, and um, and then you know kind of kept going forward with the plan of, of this ultimate world triathlon. So when you're on show you, does it, does Everest look that much higher or you're just like, Oh, it's not that much more. What's the feeling? Um, no, it, it doesn't. It, yeah. It doesn't look that much higher. I mean, it, it's certainly a fair bit higher, but when you're standing on summit of show you and it's across the way, you're, it, it's a little more dramatic than show you show you. Part of the reason we went there is it's, uh, kind of a, a pretty good training mountain to do for Everest because it's you have the elevation but it's not technically that difficult of okay. a mountain. We actually both took skis up and Caroline skied down uh, the majority of the way at least to snow line and then uh, I skied part of it and then took my skis off for part. And so anyway, I would say that you, you could definitely tell it was higher but it wasn't like this is undoable and it, it kind of made it feel like it was within reach for sure. Wow, that must be epic skiing down in the uh, the Himalayas, yeah. Yeah, so we were actually in Tibet on that. And, and when we went to Everest, we did the same thing. We went from the Tibet side, not the Nepal side. Um, and that was a very conscious decision to do that. Okay. I think there's positives and negatives to going to both sides. But on the south side, there's some objective hazards like the ice fall that you really can't control, some avalanche train above you. And you've seen that in, in the past couple of years mm-hmm. with some issues in, in those areas. Um, but then also the number of people was pro- one of our major concerns. And we didn't want to to basically get stuck in a crowd of people. Uh, a, we wanted, you know, a little more elbow room, if you will. Yeah. But also, you know, on summit day when there's a little more technical climbing, um, obviously that can be a dangerous thing to encounter. So we consciously went from uh, from the uh, north side, from Tibet. Okay. And is it hard to get visas and stuff to do the Tibetan side? or? So, like I said, there's some positive and negatives. It's probably, I don't know if it's harder or easier to get to. There's a couple of factors. We, we certainly had, I think it was something like 43 hours of like plane flights to get to Lhasa, Tibet, which oh, is wow. the um, basically the holy capital of mm-hmm. uh, Buddhism where the Dalai Lama used to live before he was basically kicked out of China. Or, um, uh, then it's like a three-day drive. Um, but on the north side, you can drive directly into base camp. So like cars oh. can literally pull up to your tent at base camp at 17,000 feet. Whereas in Nepal, you, the, you know, Things are changing a little bit over there, but generally you have about a week walk into base camp. And I'm told that that's like one of the most beautiful walks slash hikes you can do in the world anywhere. So there's that advantage, but I think a lot of people also get sick on that walk as far as GI issues and that kind of thing. So um, a, a huge part of climbing Everest is, you know, going, being fit and all that going into it, but really staying healthy um, as you kind of approach the mountain and get on the mountain. Uh, a lot of people get turned around because they've got different uh, health concerns, okay. uh, you know, just GI problems or they get cold or they get, uh, um, they get the, what's the word I'm looking for? There was the, the Kumbu cough. The Kumbu cough isn't just for the Kumbu Valley. You can certainly get it at any high altitude. It's just a dry cough you can get, but uh, a main concern of, of climbing Everest is just basically staying healthy yeah because i remember hearing that like when you're cli- i think it might have been in a movie and they're like yeah when you're climbing everest your body is dying and it's just a matter of like climbing up and down the mountain before the dying takes over yeah i mean um even at seventeen thousand feet your your body is really hurting mm-hmm. um, but once you get into what's called basically the death zone they call it the death zone basically because your body 
um, is, is just merely staying alive. It's uh, and it's trying its best to do that really. Uh, but if, if you get sick, or let's say literally, like if you cut your finger or something like that. That, that cut's not going to heal because all your body is doing is trying to um, send all of its energy to like the vital organs basically oh. to, to keep you alive. So part of the, the thing is going up high and basically acclimatizing to these super high elevations. But once you get up there, before you go to your summit push, you want to come back down and let your body slightly recover and feel a little better before you have to go back up. And then it's a little quicker push the second time where sometimes people do – three or four pushes or whatever so that when you get up high your body is acclimatized but okay. also healthy and ready to you know have a, a this physical challenge of going to the highest place on earth okay i think you guys chose a good year too to go from the north side because the pictures i saw of the lineups on the south side i think it was i believe it was the south side i must have saw lineups it was like a traffic jam yeah that photo was right below the summit there and that was uh on the south side the basically the line coming up and that was if I recall, that must have been on May 23rd. And, you know, a lot of people talked about the overcrowding on Everest. But really what happened this year, and it happens every now and again and maybe every couple of years, is that the weather makes the window go from like, say, 10 or – I think last year there was like 14 days of pretty good weather for okay. people to summit. And this year it, that got crunched down to just a couple of days. So that means – that the thousand people that are on Everest all tried to summit on like these four or five days, but it wasn't the 14 days. And there was really one main day that people went. And so that's when that photo that you saw in the New York times uh, was published on the North side. There was certainly some, um, some backup as well. And uh, you know, there was on the North side, there was about 200 climbers that summited this year. And on the South side, I think it was about 600 that actually summited. Um, so we got about a third as many people, mm-hmm. but it's actually more technical on the North side well so there's sections where people slow down and you get stuck behind people and it sounds funny to say you're passing someone on a mountain but when you've got like you know thousand foot drop-offs and technical terrain like you kind of have to stay where where the climbing is and so you do get slowed down at certain times um, but we again uh, we got up to camp two which is at 25,000 feet on our side on the, on the north side and you can see everyone moving up the mountain and so what we did was we made a conscious decision to not go up the next day to camp three um, and then go for that summit the next day and the reason we did that is we just knew there'd be too many people on the route and we didn't want to have to like deal with traffic jams okay. and inevitably when you have a lot of people on the mountain you're going to have injuries and people who aren't necessary fit enough to be up there or whatnot that need help. So we just waited one extra day at, um, at 25,000 feet, which is really hard to do is like you're on Everest, you're going, you're going to try to summit and you say, Oh, let's just like stay in our tent and stare at the in, inside of our uh, tent walls for an extra 24 hours or so. Right. It's, it's not something you want to do, but for our safety, we decided to wait a day and that really paid off. And we, when we summited, there were other people going that day, but it was, basically our team and a couple of very small teams. So we were able to work our way around most of them. And we had the summit uh, pretty much to ourselves as a team. Oh, that's so cool. And I guess it's quite dangerous too. Like, I mean, if somebody, somebody else can take you out, they have an accident and it just takes out, a could take out several people. Right. So that's, that's part of the reason to wait, I guess. 
I, I think like anything, you have to be cognizant of, of your surroundings, mm-hmm. and that means your natural environment, but also the people around you. There's not a ton of places around that you know someone else is going to fall on you and you're going to have a problem, at least on the north side. There's certainly a few spots, but on the south side, there's probably a few places like the Lotsey face where if someone falls, they're literally going to fall like right back on you. But you know, it, it's more the speed you're going and um, having to slow down for people who are maybe less experienced or uh, there's a lot of different factors because they may be less experienced um, in the terrain okay. or just can't handle the elevation as well. Or they may be at different oxygen floats as well. Um, every team, and this is some people pay a lot less to go on Everest, and then they get a lot low, lower oxygen flow on summit days, so they're going to move a lot slower. So you get stuck behind certain people uh, in the technical spot, then you're just going to have to wait for them. There's no way around them. And we, we did have some situations like that where we had to wait a little bit, and then we actually had to kind of climb around on some really technical terrain at uh, what's called the third step, which is... Um, I think that's about 28,500 feet. So you're super high doing some like technical moves and you, you know, you got to watch out for rock fall and all those kind of yeah. things. But most of it is just, there, there is kind of like one main route up the north side, one up the south side. There are other routes, but you know, probably 95% plus of people are on those two routes. So if you are, are getting slowed down, it's going to affect your entire day. Um, so we were just being cognizant of that. Okay, cool. Tell me about your wife. I mean, did, she's she's quite the climber. I've I've looked her up a little bit after uh, researching you, and she sits in and climate summits and stuff. And like, she's she's pretty well renowned. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, she's amazing. Um, <laughs> I guess I should say that, right? But uh, <laughs> no, she really is. We uh, we got engaged uh, just over a year ago, like I mentioned, and we actually got married in the middle of this whole Ultimate World Try. Um, but she yes. is um, a professional ski mountaineer. And so I appreciate that. Thank you. So she's a professional ski mountaineer, and what that means is basically that uh, she climbs everything she skis. That doesn't mean she's never taken a chairlift or anything like that, but but generally, um, you know, you can think of like a backcountry skier, but she's looking for big, steep lines, um, maybe first ascents or first descents, and and skiing um, basically all off-piste or for the most okay. part off-piste and that kind of thing. Um, but that's that's kind of part of her career, and then uh, another major part of her career or brand or um, passion and interest is uh, climate and environmental activism, and generally just social activism. To be completely honest, and so yes, she's uh, she's been to Washington D.C. probably oh half a dozen times um, to talk to senators and representatives and um, different groups uh, about uh, the environment. And she was just out there speaking on a panel, which was um, a, a pretty big honor and she was speaking on that one with uh with jeremy jones and some of the pow yeah i think that's uh, when i saw me protect our winner folks so um that's a huge part of what she does and uh you know i think a lot of people appreciate that especially me because i you know I, I care about the environment as well and these social issues and i uh she's somebody who really stands up for these issues and talks about them because they're not always easy it's sometimes it's easy to say hey you're an environmentalist but she really digs deep and um is knowledgeable about these issues and uh and makes it approachable for people who aren't you know going to protest and these things to to get them into um, kind of uh, more of that mode and 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 speaking um, out loud about these issues I saw that she tore her ACL not long before you guys climbed Everest how does how does somebody recover from that and do an Everest climb I mean that's got to be really difficult yeah, so um, seven weeks before we left for Everest, um, she was on a photo shoot with a sponsor and had a crash. 
and tore her ACL, and she kind of knew right away. She had never torn her ACL before, and that was um, something that, you know, most skiers have probably done at least one knee, but um, she's been uh, really good in her career with injuries and, and been pretty lucky at the same time. But right when it happened, it was kind of like, all right, what are we going to do? Or, you know, the next day we got her an MRI, got her into the best doctors in the area here to, to see what our possibilities were. And kind of, I don't know if it's funny or ironic or both or sad, but the day before she tore her ACL, we had uh, made our final payment for Everest, which okay. is a large, <laughs> massive sum. You know, it's like, hey, you want to buy a nice car or like go to Everest? And so we were committed at that time and we had looked into insurance and it was either not available or the few places it was, it was like tens of thousands of dollars to get insurance for Everest. So um, we hadn't gotten insurance. So basically we talked to the doctors and uh, physical therapists and they said, hey, look, if you know, the ACL is gone. Your meniscus is mostly intact. So we think that if you rehab your knee in the next seven weeks and feel good moving around before you go, that you can at least give it a go. You can at least try to climb Everest, like with a brace for some stability. But when you lose that ACL, you know, you're not going to necessarily do the ACL any more damage. It'd be more that if you had some meniscal tears or something like that, you could have other knee issues or it can okay. lock up or something like that. And so she was, she had a little bit of meniscus um, tear, but it was, it was very minor. And so they basically said, rehab it and give it a go. And we honestly didn't have another option. I say we, but because I just felt like we did this as a team, but she didn't have another option. So we, we figured, Hey, let's, let's get her to base camp. We'll start walking around and see how it feels. And then, you know, we're not going to send her on the summit attempt until she's been, uh, you know, here and on Everest feeling good and, and feels like this is something that uh, she can do and do safely. And, you know, you're, you're there for weeks on end. And so when it was time to go for the summit, she felt good. And so she went for it. And I think she handled it really well. I guess like everybody has to be making that independent decision, right? Like if she wasn't feeling it and she said, no, my knee's not ready, like you would go summit, she would wait. Or if you were sick, not feeling great, she would go summit and you would wait out, that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there we, we try to talk a lot about it as far as, you know, making sure that you, you are feeling good and that includes her knee, but just in general your mm -hmm. body and your mind are feeling good and ready to do this kind of thing. And you can't can you can't uh, rely on like your guiding company or your partner or anybody else to make those decisions for you. I think where people get in trouble uh, particularly on Everest is when you have an, an inexperienced uh, climber which does happen, it's, it's not as, I think, like, it doesn't happen as much as people kind of make it out in the media, mm -hmm. but when you have an inexperienced climber and a new and inexperienced guiding company, so they don't have all the safety protocols in place, because if you're an experienced climber, you know when it's time to turn around for the most part, right. and same thing, if you're an experienced guiding company, you know when your clients are, you know, they're not fit to keep going, but it's when you have the combination of the two that I think you have a lot of these accidents. So uh, you're exactly right. She had to be really honest with herself to make sure that the knee was feeling good and her body, but I was in the same boat. I had to make sure that I was feeling good as well, and and uh, luckily enough, we were, we were feeling good, and so we had some, some success. Well, congratulations on stage one of your uh, Ultimate World Triathlon. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty, pretty good first stage. What was the feeling when you're up on the summit? Um, in all honesty, the major feeling is I got to get off this mountain. I mean, <laughs> really? Uh, it really, it's funny because you think of the summit as this grand thing, but it, 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 you know, and it's a little cliche to say this, but it's totally true. It's really only halfway and most deaths and uh, accidents occur on the way down. Okay. Um, one thing I kind of failed to mention, um, 
earlier when we were talking about like going on the 23rd versus the 24th, which mm -hmm. we went on. The other the other people didn't go on the same day we did because there was a storm coming in in the afternoon, and people were worried that they were going to get stuck on the mountain. We felt like we were fit enough to move move quick enough to get to the summit and back off before this um, this uh, storm came in. And so when we got to the summit, it was kind of like you get up there, and like I said, the company we were with, Alpenglow Expeditions, um, they've got a lot of different safety protocols in place that are constantly checking in with you and your oxygen levels and all these different things. But one of the things they do is they're like, okay, we're starting to stop a watch when you're on the summit, and you have X amount of time, and then you have to leave because you can easily get just set up there and take it all in and try to enjoy it and take photos for like an hour or more. Okay. Um, but we had to get off the summit. So uh, we tried to get our photos in and enjoy it a bit. And um, luckily we were kind of on the front end of our team getting up there. So I think we were supposed to be up there 15 minutes and we, we probably ended up being up there about a half an hour. But once you're up there, you're kind of like, okay, we need to get down. We need to get down safely. Okay. And is it a yeah. big summit? I mean, because if there's so many people going up, I mean, it's got to be pretty big area-wise, right? Like decent size? It, it's not really. I mean, there's some areas that you can kind of work around and stand on, but I think people have said it's like the size of um, like two ping pong uh uh, tables, okay, something like smart. that. I mean, you know, there's there's some areas where it, it kind of rolls over and you could kind of go over there, but A, you're not going to be on a fixed line at that time, okay. and there's going to be, like, massive exposure. Um, there's also, you know, there might be some flags floating around from the summit, or, like, there's other people around, so when you've got your crampons on and all these kind of things, like it's not really a comfortable place. Like you're kind of huddled in with these other people. And honestly, it's really hard to try to get like a good summit photo because there's all the people and it's to, hard to take in the whole like landscape and everything else. So that's why I say like the summit is, it's kind of, uh, I mean, it's it's the goal, but the goal is really to get down. And then like when you're there, it's a little hectic and you're kind of like, okay, let's try to enjoy this and try to get some photos and then like get the hell out of here. Awesome. All right, let's talk swimming. Let's do it. So you already told us why you decided to swing the English Channel. Uh, it was something you were interested in really and um, you had hurt your ankle. So I guess to me, I'm like, you could have swam like Michigan instead and not had to go all the way to England or France. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely could have. I, you know, it's 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 probably uh, honestly part of it's the name, part of it's you're like yeah. swimming from one country to the other and um, I think there's just kind of the allure of the English Channel, to be honest. Um, there's something about it that, that called to me. Everyone asks if there's sharks. There were no sharks, so honestly, that's the part that calls to me too. Yeah. I'm, like, super afraid of sharks necessarily, but, like, when you're swimming in the ocean and you know there's sharks around, it, it definitely crosses your mind, especially if you're in the, hour, in the water for hours on end. So uh, those kind of things appealed to me, but I really knew nothing about it. And um, there may not be sharks, but there are a lot of jellyfish, and the water's quite cold. And uh, okay. what I didn't realize, like, I made my mind up at the doctor's office sitting on the table, like, I'm going to go swim the English Channel before I knew anything about it. And when I looked into it, I literally didn't even know some of the rules. And the major rule is that you can't wear a wetsuit. Not that I would have wanted to wear a wetsuit, but I didn't know the temperatures or anything. So the, the water temperature is around 60, 61 degrees. Depending on the time of year, it's anywhere, I mean, from when people swim it, anywhere from about 59 to like 63 degrees or so. That's around 15 degrees Celsius. So that's pretty yes, chilly. Yes, thank you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so nice and chilly. So I, I literally spent like a couple of years trying to acclimatize my body to handle the cold water because I had to sign up with what's called a boat pilot, the, the boat that takes you across and the guy 
guy, the captain who takes you across, he's called your pilot. Yeah. And they book out on the English Channel like two to three years in advance, especially to try to get a decent slot as far as the, the week and the tides and all oh, these different wow. things. So I had signed up for it um, probably six months after I was on that doctor's table or so, and um, I spent a lot of time in really cold lakes swimming and trying to acclimatize. And then because I don't have those lakes or an ocean or anything to swim in in the winter, I have like a uh, basically a horse trough in my backyard that I fill up in the winter and fill it up, and then it freezes over at night. I go out with a hatchet and chop it up and then jump in that guy um, for just a couple of minutes when I do that, anywhere from like um, you know three to 15 minutes uh, to try to like uh, get ready and used to the uh, the cold water. I think I saw you, I saw that on your Instagram recently too. You did it just the other day, didn't you? I did, and honestly, right before I went out, I was telling uh, my, my wife Caroline, I was like, "Okay, remind me why I'm still doing this. I, I don't really know. I, I think I've got. I think I kind of like it. I think I'm still like kind of living the ultimate world, try like you know life dream, trying to like you know bring some of that back in or something. I, I definitely want to do some more channel swims in the future, but like I, I'm not really sure why I'm still doing it. But I, I have some." sick, you know, want to get in the cold water and kind of test myself. It's partly physically, but it's it's mostly mental yeah. in that cold water. And I think I just kind of still want to push my my mental, like, phys, um, limitations as much as possible. Okay. And um, you're saying about the rules. So you're not allowed to wear a wetsuit, but you have to wear Speedos? Like, it has to be particularly the, that kind of, like, small bikini bottom type thing? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know the exact size. There are really specific numbers of how big it can get. You might be able to wear like a three or four inch hip side thing, whatever that's called. Um, but, but you can't wear what's called a jammer, which is like a, a tight suit that would go down just above your knee. That's like, that would be too long for them. So yes, it's, you have to wear a, a speedo. Um, and then all the only other thing you can really wear is a cap and goggles. Um, they'll let you wear earplugs and then, the only other thing I can think of, well, I guess there's two things. Um, they want you to have lights uh, on your goggle for swimming at night, and then you can do glow sticks as well that kind of connect to your suit. And then the last thing would be um, you can put Vaseline in your armpits and neck and that sort of thing oh, wow. uh, for chafing, though. That's not – a lot of people ask if that's for warmth, and I think you know, 50 or 100 years ago they used to use this kind of like duck fat and just slather yeah. you in it and it might keep you a little warmer. But there's not enough on there to keep you warm at all. And it's just in areas like your neck um, and armpits that get chafed because of the salt water. Yeah, and I think as your, your head keeps turning to breathe and stuff, you're going to be just like as you're swimming, you know, you're just getting a little bit of stubble and stuff and you could just start to like rare on you, right? Yeah, totally. I'm, I've been totally surprised even in freshwater lakes around Utah um, I'll go out and if I forget to put it on for an hour or two swim, I'll come back and I'll have like this huge hickey mark, you know, on my neck. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's not fun and it doesn't feel good either. It, it definitely like burns for a while. Um, but if you were to try to swim 12 hours in the ocean without any of that, uh, you, you'd be in a world of hurt. Yeah. So why can't you wear a watch? Is there a reason for that? I don't have a good answer for you other than the same reason you can't wear a wetsuit. And yeah. it's, I think it's just kind of these old school rules that, you know, a watch is going to like, you could set your pace on your watch or you could do all these different things mm-hmm. or whatever. I mean, you've got a boat next to you and you can potentially stop at any time on the swim and ask them questions. You can just never touch the boat. And the other thing the boat can do is, um, 
they can give you food and water and that kind of thing. But they, they have to do it in kind of a very specific way. They toss you like a water bottle on a string. And the string can never go like taut because then you'd be getting like help, like getting towed across, right? So, um, and they, they have, you have an observer on the boat making sure that all the rules are um, adhered to. And like, uh, I actually have a log of from my observer about every single calorie I ate, um, when I stopped, how long I stopped. If uh, I did take some ibuprofen at like hour five because my shoulder started hurting, and he like he noted every little tiny thing that happens along uh, along the, the way. Okay, what kind of food did you eat? Is it just like energy gels and stuff, or like obviously it's not a ham sandwich, but. Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used their race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Mangin in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. Um, I mean, people eat anything, and I actually I did eat some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I'd no have way! Can awesome. I make? Yeah, I'd make it, and then she would lower it in this little basket, and then I'd grab it, and usually the basket would dip into the water, and it'd be all soaked with like salt water, and it was kind of disgusting, but kind of easier to eat because <laughs> yeah. it was wet, you know. Um, but I ate like uh, you know some PB and Js. I ate uh, bananas. I ate lots of like Cliff bars and yeah. Cliff gels. So. I was definitely on the silver bullet, the uh, espresso with the caffeine um, uh, cliff shots there. Yeah. So I was definitely using those. And then uh, I had some Snickers bars. I had a couple of Red Bulls. Um, let's see. What else did I have? I think that's mostly it. Um, are you familiar with Miratin? I'm not sure if not I'm even pronouncing that right. Sure but that it's is, kind of a newer... It's like a, a hydrogel is what it's called, and it's um, it's a way you can kind of drink your calories. So it's it's like a, a powder that goes into your water, oh, okay. and then yeah. it kind of forms a gel, and then you drink it, and it's got you know I don't know three hundred calories per liter or something oh, like wow. that. Oh wow! Okay. No, I've never so, heard of it. Whole, I'll check it out. Yeah, the whole goal is to get calories any way you really can, because um, being horizontal in the water, it's really hard to digest anything. So ho- solid foods are typically harder. Um, that being said, like I kind of wanted some different foods. You know, you, my my mouth was really destroyed from the um, from the salt water. Yeah. It was like yeah, for a couple of days afterwards, even I, I my mouth was all all jacked up. In Malaysia, I did a swim, which was about three and a half miles. So I think five and a half to six kilometers, somewhere like that. And that took me about two hours, not having really trained properly for it. But that was freaking hard, man, with all the salt. It was disgusting. No, that's good. Yeah. Um, So at the start of the swim, how were you feeling? Were you pretty jacked or were you thinking like, oh, fuck, what am I doing? 
Well, um, I'll like back you up just slightly. When yeah, sure. I got to England, I thought I had like two days before my – we have like a window before you start your swim or basically to wait for the weather and uh, the tides to kind of align and then your pilot calls you. So when I arrived, I thought I had like two days to kind of relax and my pilot called me right away and said, hey, the weather looks good. I have availability. We should go. And I was literally driving to Dover um, from London, and I said, all right, let's do it, because I'd always been told to just jump on it. And then I hung up the phone, and I was like, uh, you know, first of all, I felt like total crap. I thought I maybe picked up a bug on the plane or something like that, and I was super tired. I was, like, trying not to fall asleep on the way to mm-hmm. Dover. So I called him back and said, you know what, like, give, it, give this spot to someone else. I'm going to take my chances. I'm, like, not in a, a position to go. So he gave that position to another swimmer, and I slept 12 hours that next night, but had like night sweats the whole time, woke up like every hour, and all this kind of stuff. I, um, and he called again and said, hey, uh, you know, the other swimmer, uh, he didn't actually make it, and so I can go again this afternoon. Do you want to go? And I was like, let's do it. And so I did not feel good. This was the one event that I was most apprehensive about, and I was the least confident about. Even though I'm a swimmer and I thought that I could handle this, I did not have much swim training behind me in the last couple of months because I was on Everest and mm-hmm. all these different things. The other thing um, that I had to do was I didn't swim much because I was trying to put on a ton of weight because I lost like 20 pounds on Everest. So in the 47 days between Everest and my English Channel swim, I put on 30 or 35 pounds. And that was the way I did that was just eat, 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 but also I couldn't work out too much. Mm-hmm. And that, the whole reason to do that was that I thought the crux of the swim was uh, the cold water. And so I, I put on all this weight. Anyway, long story short, I'm on the boat. I'm feeling like, you know what? It's my time. I'm going to go for it. But I was not, not super confident, to be completely honest. Okay. Um, but then I jumped in the water, and I swam to the shore where you, know, you have to get out, out and they sound the horn to kind of start the whole thing and honestly the second I, I jumped in the water I was like hey I feel pretty good the water doesn't feel too cold maybe I'm actually going to do this all right and the first hour or two of the swim I, I felt great and uh, I think that I needed that confidence boost and I got it uh, but I also knew that I was like an hour or two into potentially I thought this one was going to take me like 12 to 14 hours maybe even longer because I hadn't been swimming um, so I, I, I knew to be cautiously optimistic um, you know an hour or two into this thing okay and were you ever in any doubt as to whether or not you'd finish once I got in and started swimming I felt pretty good most of the time and I don't think that there was any time that I felt like hey uh, I want to go touch the boat, get on the boat, anything yeah. like that. I think it was hour three, I saw my first jellyfish. And then hour four, they were everywhere. And hour four, five, six of the swim, mm-hmm. I, I was just swimming through blooms of jellyfish. And I was probably getting oh. sung at least 25 times per hour. I mean, they were just everywhere. And during that time, I, I knew to expect some jellyfish. but And I thought in like this weird sadistic way that it would actually give me like a little adrenaline shot <laughs> and like something else to think about or whatever. Because, you know, it's like a bee sting. You, you know, you can handle it, but it's like, whoa, you know, and, and then you just kind of keep going or whatever. But so I knew to expect that. But after I was got stung that many times, I, I was handling it pretty well. But I kind of thought to myself, if this keeps up, like it has over the last couple of hours, you know, can I do another, you know, 10 hours or five, 10 hours right. of this? A, like mentally, and B, like I, I thought I could get some like toxicity in my blood or something from getting stung too much. So there was like a little bit of doubt because of that, 
Um, but luckily I had another swimmer who had done the English Channel um, the year before on my boat as one of my crew members. And she knew that the tides were going to be changing at like hour seven. And she said, hey, hour seven, they're going to change. And I think that'll push the jellyfish the other direction and you should be good. And she was mostly right. Like there were still jellyfish, but it wasn't mm -hmm. anything like it was before. So after that, I kind of put my head down and, and kept swimming. I swam mostly through the night because I started at like 4.30 p.m. and finished at 4.15 a.m. Okay. So most of the time it was it was actually dark and um, I just kind of had my head down just going for it. Um, so yeah, I, I felt pretty good for the most part throughout it. I had little you know shoulder niggles and different things like that, but um, I, I never really felt like it was gonna uh, wasn't gonna happen once I was a good you know halfway through or something okay. like that. Yeah, I've been stung by jellyfish doing a triathlon and right in the back of the leg, and then I got lashed once on kind of the armpit slash face. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's pretty painful. Like it's not a comfortable way yeah. to keep swimming. So I mean, if you've been stung 25 times an hour, I do not envy you in the least. Yeah. There was two or three times that uh, were really bad. I had two direct blows to uh, my face that were just direct blows to my face that really hurt. Um, they're these compass jellyfish, so I don't know that their stings are as bad as a lot of jellyfish, mm -hmm. but it definitely hurts. And then I had one time where I looked up and I saw like just all these jellyfish and there was no way around them. Um, and I just kind of put my head down and probably swam through like 20 at one time or something. And, uh, you know, my whole body is just tingling. Uh, but the, the other ones were okay. It's just like those three really stand out in my mind as like being super painful. Wow. How do you pace yourself when you're, when you're doing such a long swim, like to make sure you don't go overboard, go too fast or whatever? Um, I don't have a good answer other than that I've been a swimmer my whole life. And right. so I think there's just a lot of preparation of knowing a, a sustainable pace. You, you definitely don't want to make the channel any longer than it needs to be. So you want to stay at a pretty steady pace, uh, but you, you don't want to burn out either. So I think I just got in my rhythm and where I was comfortable and where I'd kind of trained and all those kind of things and kind of kept that pace up. And I think generally my pace stayed pretty constant over most of the, uh, uh, the swim. Okay. And, um, how, how do you know where to go? Like, does, is this like Caroline is then in the boat telling you ease left or head left, head right, that kind of thing? Or? Um, you, you can see people on the boat, but you can't really make out a whole lot of things that are happening. So generally the boat's just next to you and they're headed in a certain direction. And anytime I got too far away from the boat, I'd just kind of head towards it. Okay. And if I was too close, I'd, I'd, you know, generally if I could, I'd stay like 10 feet away from the boat. But there were definitely times that I was swimming, you know, I don't know, something like 25 to 50 meters away from the boat or okay. something like that as well. So, you know, I, I was anywhere near the boat and I would just follow, particularly at night, I had no idea where I was going, right? So I would just kind of follow the light of the, the boat on the front and there was some kind of one light that sh uh, shined into the water and I'd try to kind of keep that in my sights as much as possible and just kind of follow the light, to be honest. It was kind of a, a funny feeling. Not the most, uh, <laughs> just, just say, yeah, just follow the light. Um, yeah, exactly. All right. So how do you pee while you're swimming? Most of the time during my stops, so, you, you know, some people uh, pee when they're actually swimming and I've tried, I can do it, but it's, it's not really comfortable and, uh, you know, if you were, if I was going for some kind of like speed record, I'd probably practice that more and do that, but I basically, whenever I would stop, so the, the way it works and everybody has their own like system, but the first three hours of the swim, I stopped once an hour 
to get like some food and water mm-hmm. from the boat. And then after that, I'd stop every half hour. And that also kind of just breaks up the swim a little bit mentally where, you know, you just say like, okay, I'm just going to, I can swim for one half hour and I'll see how it goes. And you get to that half hour and you start swimming and you go, okay, I'm just going to see how it goes for the next half hour. Okay. Anyway, um, during, during those stops, I'd have like, you know, some water or Red Bull or, you know, whatever it was and some food. And then I'd usually uh, take a pee and I, Surprisingly, I took in a lot more fluids than I was expecting, and maybe that had to do with the salt water and other factors. But I I, I peed a lot actually, so okay. it, it actually slowed me down um, a number of minutes because I would have to stop and pee. I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't have to, but I was like, you know, I'm gonna be much more comfortable, so I would just sit there and pee for a minute. I hope you peed after you ate your dipped in water peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I sure did. <laughs> All right, <laughs> let's talk it. about the bike ride. <laughs> cool. How did you choose your route? It just kind of came naturally to me for for the most part. So the finishing point was probably the first thing that um, was natural. I had always joked around with a childhood friend of mine who his folks have a, a place on Nantucket, mm-hmm. and he had invited me out a few times. And so he, you know, it never worked out. And I also I didn't know anything about Nantucket, but it also just seemed like a very chill place, which it, it totally is. But uh, you know, being kind of a little hyper active that I am, I was like, I, I need to like be tired when I get there. So I'd always joked around that I'd, I'd ride from Park City to Nantucket and then I'd be tired and I just want to sit around on the beach and do nothing. Right. And so when I was thinking about a place to end, um, it just kind of came naturally to, to end in Nantucket. Um, as far as the starting place I, I, or, and the general route, uh, route I, I didn't um, I knew that I wanted to go through the mountains because I'm, I'm from the mountains, I bike in the mountains, and I just thought it would be more scenic and I wasn't trying to go for time or anything like that. So one of the things I wanted to do was go over the going to the sun road in Glacier National Park. Okay. And so I started looking around and talking to some different folks. Um, a friend of mine, Darren Alf, uh, the bicycle touring pro, um, he's written a bunch of books and I talked to him. Um, he introduced me to Adventure Cycling Association, the ACA, and they have a route. Um, it's not, I don't know if it's technically their route, but um, it's called the Northern Tier and it starts in Anacortes, Washington, just north of Seattle. Okay. So I got on that route and I, I generally rode that route from Anacortes to about Fargo. There was a couple of times that I got off of it for one reason or another, weather or I just thought there was a better route or there was road construction and different things like that. But I was probably on it for 80% of the way to Fargo or something like that. And like I said, that was mostly because I wanted to go north because of temperature, like the the weather Mm -hmm. um, in the fall. Um, I wanted to be in the mountains and I'm just a mountain guy and that kind of stuff. And then from there, from like Fargo, I wanted to go through Rochester, Minnesota because that's where Caroline's from. So I wanted to, I'd never been there and I kind of wanted to see what that was all about. I wanted to go through there. She still has a brother that lives there. So I wanted to do that. And then kind of from there, it was it was looking at big cities and, and kind of landmarks as far as like Great Lakes. So I, I went from, from Rochester basically over to Milwaukee and then skirted um, Lake Michigan, right? Yeah, Lake Michigan to Chicago and then over to Cleveland and then from Cleveland to New York and then up the coast from New York to Hyannis Port where I caught the ferry to Nantucket. Okay, so you went through the big city, yeah? I did, and I kind of did that on purpose. I I wanted to see the big city, and I kind of like, you know, there was a lot of times, most times, you're out in the middle of nowhere on a bike, Mm -hmm. and I kind of like the juxtaposition of going from the farmland and and dirt roads to all of a sudden being in, like, a busy city. A couple years ago, I rode, like, um, 6th Ave going 
north in New York City, and I thought it was like way fun. I was on like city bikes, you know, that yeah. kind of thing, and I was like, I, I kind of want some of that. So I made it kind of a point to go right through a lot of the major cities, and I, I kind of enjoyed that. Just for the non-American listeners, from Washington State to Fargo, how far is that across the country? Well, you're going to test me here. Oh, I'm just, just in general. Like, is it 20% of the way, 30? I'm going to say, no, I'm just trying to think that's probably something like 1,800 miles, which would okay. be in kilometers. What are you talking about? That'd be like, like just around, just a little bit over 3,000. Yeah, I was around three. Yeah, somewhere there. Okay. So it's a significant chunk of the country. Yeah. And, and that first part of the country was because the states are so much bigger, it didn't feel like I was making the progress like Washington is huge east to west and then the same thing with Montana it's even bigger it, t- it took me like I think it took me six or seven I think it was seven days to get across Montana and my original plan was to try to make it across the country in about 30 days and when it takes you seven days to get across one state you think this is never going to happen but then you get to the east coast and you're taking off like the major cities and all these states like every couple of days it, mm-hmm. it, it really helped my confidence to, to kind of keep going what kind of bike did you use for this trip yeah, I used a specialized diverge, um, and I picked that bike for two main reasons. I wanted a wider tire, so I ran 38s on it, uh, okay. just to have a sturdier, tourless tire, something I could ride off-road, um, all those kind of different things. And then also, uh, I wanted a bike that put me a little more upper right than the traditional road bike that I've been on. So a lot of my bikes are just a little more kind of race bikes, and I wanted um, – I have some back problems, so – I wanted something more upright because I thought that the my back problems could sneak up at any time. Um, also, I found one that was pink, and I really liked that. <laughs> yeah, sweet. It looked really nice, yeah. Thanks, thanks. Did you use a different saddle? Like, what kind of saddle did you put on it? Nope, I used the stock saddle. And honestly, one of the biggest mistakes I made with this whole triathlon uh, was probably, like, not having some of my gear beforehand. The saddle, you know, maybe I would have found a better saddle or maybe not, but I literally got my bike three, four weeks before I left on the ride. Oh, okay. Um, but like I mentioned, I actually had um, I had my wedding in there as well between the swim yeah. and the bike. So I had to go into wedding mode for a little while, and I barely got to ride my bike between the swim and the and the start of the bike. I probably rode it maybe half a dozen times for a total of like eight hours. I mean, it was not much riding, and I started with like no bike fitness at all, which which was a crux. But the bigger problem was being on gear that I hadn't uh, fully tested. Yeah. And, you know, the bike was great in the end, but um, I will say that the saddle sores were one of the worst things I've ever experienced, and it, it made the ride really hard. Great. That's one thing I want to talk about. How did you get past the saddle sores? You know, I knew I didn't really have a whole lot of choice. I, I, I knew that I have to get on my bike every day. And generally, the first um, half hour to hour was super uncomfortable. And I just kind of dealt with that, moved around along the bike a lot, stood up as much as possible and did different things. But I, I would do that. And then as soon as I got off the bike, I would try to get my bike clothes off, you know, jump in the shower, you know, wash off with all my clothes on, um, you know, to, to wash my jersey and all that kind of stuff. But then, you know, I tried everything and, you know, some things worked better than others. These nuts um, is like some saddle sore cream that definitely helped. Okay. I tried baby powder different times. I just, I tried a combination of different things and in the end, some things probably helped, but I basically had the saddle sores all the way across the country okay. after the first like three days. So things helped relieve some of the discomfort, like the D's nuts, but generally I just had to deal with it. And it was usually the first hour and like the last hour or two of the ride that really was not fun. You mentioned claw hand. What is claw hand? 
Yeah, so Clawhand, I, I had kind of heard about this beforehand, but I didn't know much about it. But it's basically from your hand position on the outside of your hoods there. Mm-hmm. If, if your hand is in the wrong position, it's hard for me to kind of explain uh, verbally. It's easier for me to show like in person. But on, on the outside of your palm, uh, there, your ulnar nerve runs down that side and then through your arm, basically. Okay. But if you're doing hours on end, particularly without um, having the background of a ton of riding, like if you just jump into it like I did, and you put the pressure on that ulnar nerve, it basically you start to lose strength and dexterity in your fingers. And generally, I, I lost a lot of strength and dexterity in my pinky finger and my ring finger, the, okay. the two end fingers. It was, it was my hand in general, but what would happen is I, a little bit of tingling and stuff like that, but I could deal with that. That's just like a little bit of pain and you, you deal with it. But it was literally like doing really small things. I had to have Caroline or somebody else sometimes like unbuckle my helmet because I couldn't squeeze my fingers together. And it's from the pressure on that ulnar nerve. Oh, okay. um, yeah, so the main thing I did was change positions, uh, hand positions on the bike, and I moved my hand a little further out. And that, that seemed to help a lot. What else did I do? I, you know, some stretching and, and different things like that. But but generally, just moving my hand position was the biggest thing I did. Do you regret not throwing some arrow bars on there? I, I, I probably should have at some point, maybe even before the ride started. But the whole point of this is I kind of wanted to be upright and, like, yeah. see the country uh, to a certain extent, not have my head down in, in the arrow bars. But it, it probably would have been helpful, to be honest. Uh, it sounds funny, but I also kind of had my bike set up. I had this uh, little lunch box out in front, and I kind of had that, and it would have, like, messed up getting into there because I had, like, you know, I had my treats, uh, food, and stuff like that, my GoPro and, like, stuff like that in there. So I probably should put some arrow bars on. That probably would have helped as well. Well, I see that, like, uh, guys that do, like, these ultra-distance cycling things, a lot of them have arrow bars and not – necessarily so they're in a super arrow position they're usually set up quite high it's just to get that get off the wrists and i interviewed a guy named chris bennett actually i think last episode and um, he talked about using electronic shifters because he felt that after a couple thousand kilometers of riding like shifting became hard with your on your fingers because you're riding 15 hours a day in their case. Yeah, totally. Yeah, when this whole thing happened, I talked to a local Park City guy, Michael Conti, who I think he was like eighth in the Ram uh, last year, the Ride Across America. And he had this claw hand really, really bad. And he told me how to like move my hand positions. He definitely recommended the arrow bars, and I almost got them. But the part of the problem was I was on the move every day, so I didn't really have like the resources to – um, like just stop for, I mean, I, I probably could have stopped for a couple hours and found some in some city, but generally I was out in the middle of nowhere and, yeah. and these products were not necessarily available. But long story short, he had that problem really bad and he said the same thing. If you don't change your hand position, by the end of this ride, you're not going to be able to shift. Um, but I think I must have just tweaked it enough that uh, I had the claw hand most of the ride, but it wasn't didn't get that much worse after about the first week or 10 days. Okay. And um, did you camp at all or was it always in hotels? Yeah, we, we ended up doing the uh, the hotel thing or motels most of the time, yeah. I, I guess a combination of both. And we, we, we took a tent and stuff like that. But in the end, and you know, there's a million ways to ride across the country. And at some point, I'd like to do a little more true bike camping, bike packing, camping mm-hmm. style. Um, but the way we did this, I, I really wanted like after being in the saddle for 
you know, eight hours. A, I wanted to bed, but I also more than anything just wanted a shower and like yeah. a little bit of convenience just to recover for the next day. You could certainly do it a lot of different ways, and I, I respect people who uh, who go that extra mile to to do the camping aspect. I'd love to do that for like a couple of days or a week or something like that, and also have a different pace for the bike and whatnot. But I was like super sweaty, covered in bugs, and covered in like road dirt juice whatever you want to call it pollution literally mm-hmm. um, and that's not to say other people who are camping don't have that but I kind of gave myself that luxury of, of staying in uh, hotels and motels yeah yeah good points I mean there's a lot of different ways to do everything right and um, I mean you'd be doing a different thing totally. if you were doing the race across America for instance and uh, in this case it didn't have to be unsupported it didn't have to be camping and stuff how was it having someone with you because you had your your wife with you for a lot of the time your mom came up and helped you i think yeah so i mean the, the ride started off and i thought i was going to really like enjoy my time on the road alone and so caroline was going to join me for the first part because we we drove from utah up to anacortes where we started the ride and then generally caroline would ride like 10 or 15 miles with me in the morning and then ride back to the car maybe uh, the motel, take a shower, do some work, whatever, and then meet me later in the day uh, or at the finish line and for that day or whatnot. So she was going to only be with me for like the first, I think, 12 days, and then she had to go to Washington to speak to the Congress and whatnot. And so the rest of it I was going to do self-supported, and I kind of had gotten the bags ready to be also self-supported. And the first couple of days in the, in the uh, North Cascades, I actually rode with everything that I needed in on my bike, and that was the other reason that I just got crushed from the start of the bike. Okay. Okay, but sorry, long story short to get to your question, and that is – I quickly realized it was really nice to have someone to meet either at lunch or along the way or at least at the end of the day and not have to like get on my bike and ride to dinner in the dark after I've been riding my bike all day or something like that. And so I found it just, you know, invaluable to have Caroline with me. And then my mom was gracious enough to come up for the middle part of the country. She was with me for like 12 days as well. And so that it was invaluable to have someone that could run a couple errands potentially along the way, but also more just anything, you know, I, I thought I wanted some time on the road by myself and I got that because I was on my bike like 10 hours a day, but then it was nice to have someone to meet and talk to at the end of the day and, and probably gripe a little bit and also celebrate, you know, some of the beautiful places that I saw and that kind of thing. <laughs> I can imagine they're like, man, Rob's so negative recently. <laughs> We had to have those discussions because I think a lot of times I'd roll up and be like, okay, give me some of this or that or what's next or where are we meeting and like not always in the best mood because yeah. I've been like just, you know, on my on my bike for so many hours. But uh, but uh, they, they were both amazing supporters and I can't thank them enough for it. What was your favorite parts of cycling across the U.S.? Is there anything in particular? I mean, there, there's so many places that it's it's hard to pick one or the other. The North Cascades were great. I would definitely say, you know, going to the Sun Road was a highlight. Uh, I had to do it in, like, this fog and rain, and it was uh, quite the experience. It was, like, 41 degrees and raining, so what is that, like, 5 degrees Celsius or something? Yeah, yeah um, something like that. It was kind of miserable, but in a full kind of way, um, so that was a highlight. I always, for some reason, I go back to North Dakota, which sounds really funny, but I've never been to North Dakota. 
there's not much there, but there was kind of a beauty in the simplicity of just like riding these long straight roads and like being out there in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of like North Dakota, which was really funny. Some of the best actual like paths were definitely Minnesota and Wisconsin. Minnesota had all these great paved paths and Wisconsin had a lot of gravel, like kind of rail to trail paths. So um, as far as bike paths and um, if someone were going to go out and do a state, those two are like amazing bike states. They really cater to a a lot of different trails um, that are just great to get off the road. So I really enjoyed that. And then, you know, once I got to the East Coast, it was kind of cool to do some of the cities and uh, that kind of thing. But I think the highlights were definitely like maybe Glacier and and Minnesota, Wisconsin. Those were both great. So. All right. What about the lowlights? Probably hate to kind of hate to say it, but like New Jersey was not fun. Partly because I one day I, I kind of took two half days in New Jersey. One day was raining super hard. It was super cold. It was one of my harder days. Uh, and then I was like riding in traffic and like puddles. I got this. Uh massive flat where I got this nail that went through two sides of my tire. So, um, that was the whole disaster. And then the next day, next half day getting to basically Jersey city, you're just going through a lot of industrial areas, construction Mm -hmm. zones, tons of trucks around, like just not really that fun riding to be honest. Just not really bike friendly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, once you get to New York, there's like bike lanes everywhere and they're kind of set up for that. New Jersey, I did not see that. And that's not to say it doesn't exist, but from what I was looking at, because I was doing a combination at that time of like looking at Google Maps in bike mode and car mode and trying to like figure out the best way to get from point A to point B. So there's probably some really great paths and I know there's a few um, that I probably missed and I should have done, but my experience was that was one of the harder places to, to ride. Of the three events, which would you say was the most difficult physically and which one was the most difficult mentally? You know, it's kind of funny to say because most people before this whole thing started and especially after I'd done Everest and the swim thought, oh, the bike's going to be like a total cakewalk because I think most people have ridden a bike and they they can kind of imagine like riding a bike for a couple hours or something like that. And most people can't imagine swimming for hours on end or like, you know, going to the summit of Everest. Um, But but in the end, I would say that the bike uh, was probably the hardest physically and mentally. Wow. Um, And (laughs) there's probably a little caveat to that, that that was that's the most fresh in my mind and these kind of adventures are that type two where they did become yeah. more fun over time so already like you know the bike has become much more fun as as time has gone on but like ever seems like it was like all you know fun because that was now nine months ago or whatever it was and um i have to like go back and watch videos of like how much my face and my body changed and like listen to me talking and and think oh my god yeah that there was times that it really hurt but even with the bike being the most recent, I would say, you know, it's, it was just a relentless activity. Every day I had to get up and ride my bike that many hours. Um, as far as the muscles, the mental kind of like stamina doing it by myself. I mean, I had Caroline there for parts of it um, as far as the riding, but generally I was riding by myself. Yeah. Um, so doing all those miles by myself was, was mentally draining as well. And it was I, I just think the bike was probably – it was 39 days of working out eight hours a day. And on Everest, you might have eight-hour days, but then you have a lot of sitting around, acclimatizing. And the swim was super hard, probably the hardest 12 hours of the whole triathlon. But it was only 12 hours and yeah, it was done. Exactly. I didn't have to do it the next day. So I, I think the bike was probably the hardest part. 
Tell us more about the gender equality campaign uh, you're working towards or you're trying to raise awareness for and how this became such an important part of your life. I think I, I've been trying to find my voice in this uh, in this area, and part of it was I got to know Caroline six years ago. We started dating, and I, you know, right off the bat when we would go like ski touring, she was a professional skier, uh, you know, basically a professional backcountry skier. And when we would go out into the backcountry, and we'd see someone out on the trail they would approach me and kind of ask what our plan was for the day and what we were doing and maybe what I saw in the conditions, uh, you know, what the Abbey conditions were okay. and that kind of thing. And I was like a total newbie to it. I've been doing it a little bit before I met Caroline, but I was still really green. And she was the professional, but I, the people just approached me because I was like a male and I was, you know, somewhat tall and six one and all these kind of things. So I just saw this kind of uh, this bias, particularly uh, gender bias that uh, was forming. And I, I've seen that over the years with her and that really equates when we started looking at Everest um, we saw that only 11% of the climbers or the summiteers are women and that kind of generally translates to about the same number of like women that are in uh, CEOs of like uh, major corporations okay. and fortune 500 companies and that kind of thing and we thought that was a really interesting kind of parallel um, and we thought it would be a, a, a different way to talk about gender equality as far as mountains compared to just saying, hey, give women a better chance in the workplace. It, it's not just the workplace. It, it's big biases that happen you know, kind of obviously, and then there's a lot of implicit bias that happens behind the scenes mm -hmm. that I realized things that I was saying or talking about were a little bit biased. I mean, a, a kind of a funny example would be I'm in real estate here in Park City, and generally, you write a contract for a house or a condo, you just automatically kind of put the guy's names first on there, right? And it doesn't really matter because if you've got two names on a contract, you're going to own it equally. Mm -hmm. But the guy's name always kind of goes first, and um, that kind of translates to how we live our lives. And I, I just want people to have the conversation and realize that that bias is out there. Um, you're not going to change someone's mind that is truly sexist, I don't think, um, for the most part. Maybe maybe you will sometimes, but generally it's um, giving people an awareness of how they um, talk to or about women or just having the conversation so that when you're, uh, if you're an owner of a company and you're going to promote someone or you're a manager, you're going to promote someone, um, you don't just look at the guy who looks like you because he, you know, he's a guy. You look at the person who's qualified and you look at uh, a woman equally. So yeah. I just thought it was an important issue to bring up and it's not always the easiest thing to talk about, but I think we've made some change and I look forward to keeping this conversation going and I've had some really nice comments where people have told me that they've realized some of their own bias in their, the way they talk or, or you know, go about life. So it's been really rewarding. That's really interesting. Cause actually, you know, when you mentioned this about even just the contracts, the names on the contracts, it made me think right away of like, when I talk about friends, a married couple, it just comes naturally to say the yep. guy's name first. I never even would have thought of it. Yeah. And you know, you could, it's hard to say how much of a difference that that makes, but if you do that, um, over a lifetime, you're, you're kind of putting that woman second, you know, millions of times over their lifetime. And it's, it's, it's kind of a little uh, implicit bias thing that, hey, you know, why does, that why does it have to be that way? So, yeah, it's really interesting to think about it. And I like your reference to, like, women climbing mountains to women climbing the mountains of the corporate world. You know, it's, it's very – I would not have known that they were both around the same. That's pretty insane when you think of it. Yeah, so, and I'll, I'll throw this out there because it's, it's some pushback that I get is that people go, well, maybe maybe women don't want to climb mountains as much as men or something like that. But, you know, it's a trickle-down effect, and when you look at um, 
it, when you look at like a ski magazine, I was just looking at um, Free Skier magazine, I think it was the other day, and they they show the different skiers and like they show a mountaineer. They show different skiers and they showed men and women. And then they showed a mountaineer um, and the equipment that that mountaineer should buy, and it was only a male. And you know that's okay. that's what 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 women see from when they're little girls. And, um, it, you know, it's in our marketing and everything else. And so what we want is just equal representation and and to take that, um, that fact into consideration that, yeah, maybe there's not as many women. So, you you know, you don't think you need to market, but the reason there's not as many women is because you're not marketing to them as much. So it goes both ways. Yeah. As a teacher, um, I mean, a lot of what I see now in the classroom, especially coming back to Canada, because I'd been abroad for quite a while in the Canadian curriculum, you know, everything is saying you shouldn't be putting prescribed gender th- behaviors and expectations. And there's a lot of books that schools are buying to represent women in different categories, you know, to, to show, to give that, um, to give the students that choice, right. To see that there's different things out there. So, but it's, it's really hard yeah. to, to like keep this mentality and keep this in your mind, you know, on a day to day basis, because it just takes work, but maybe eventually it'll become natural and we won't think of it. That's the hope, right? I, I think that's exactly it. I, I'm glad to hear that there are those books and they're they're trying to push the type of things. And, and sometimes it's uncomfortable for change, just like anything in our lives. But I think the more that we, um, uh, you know, kind of realize some of our own bias and our societal bias, those that's that's where you can get the change. Is you you start, you know, um, just making these subtle changes over time, and just and basically it's just giving women an equal chance. And gosh, who wouldn't fight for that? It seems crazy not to to want that. Yeah. Uh, what's next for you, Rob? Um, I mean, with regards to both the organization, uh, the gender equality campaign and adventure wise. Yes. So as far as I I obviously want to keep talking about the gender equality and I think we'll have the opportunity to do that. And part of the way we'll do that is through the Big Mountain Dreams Foundation, which is a foundation that Caroline and I just recently kind of put together and founded. And we're just going to talk about social equality and social issues um, and also environmental issues. So we'll be able to tie that in along with our adventures and hopefully support people on other adventures and activism that they want to participate in. Um, so that, that's that, that part of it. As far as uh, adventures that I want to go and go on, it, it took me a little bit, and the what's next question was, uh, in, in all honesty, the first like week or two or three was a little bit annoying after my bike ride after mm-hmm. I finished this, but now I, I've definitely got the wheels turning, and um, there's definitely a lot of mountains I want to climb or climb and ski, so I'm kind of looking at what's next, and I, I you know, the, the English Channel was my first kind of big open water swim that I'd done. And I definitely have the bug to do some more of that. So I'm kind of looking at maybe some options there. Uh, maybe I go to Catalina um, in uh, California or like swim this straight up Gibraltar or something like that. Oh, awesome. So I don't have any, yeah, I don't have any concrete plans at this point, but it's mostly the same kind of stuff, but just different goals. And I think there's always adventures out there to be had. And you know, I, I need them for my own mental peace and whatnot as well. And I just, I like to push my, my body and mind to the max. And so I'll be looking for those adventures. I just don't have any in concrete at the moment. Awesome. And not taking away anything away from your wife. Uh, what is Caroline up to next? I think she's looking at some big mountains to go climb, but also ski because that's her forte is mm-hmm. the, the skiing part of it. So she's looking at anything, you know, all big mountains, just all around the world, honestly. I think she's going to probably be heading up to Canada. I don't think she has any concrete plans, but she'll probably be 
heading to the Himalayas again or Karakoram or you know somewhere like that. But I, I don't think there's any concrete plans in place. Uh, we you know we just finished the the bike ride and we had the wedding, so we're doing a little home time and like yep. doing our home projects and uh, like replacing the poles on our uh, the drawers uh, in our kitchen. Like really just you know kind of getting back to the basics, but also starting to think forward to all that fun stuff. Awesome. And I just want to throw in there that on the Instagram post, I think one or two weeks ago, her her S's were nicer when you guys were skiing. Oh, you son of a... Of course they are. <laughs> She's a professional skier. They should be better. Hey, give me a little credit. I flew the drone, you know? I, I like... That was some pretty good footage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where can people find out more about you and uh, your foundation as well, if they're interested? Yeah, probably the best way for just me would be on Instagram at rob.lee. That's R-O-B dot L-E-A. And then uh, certainly follow uh, Caroline as well at Caroline Gleich. Um, and that's G-L-E-I-C-H. And then our foundation is BigMountainDreamsFoundation.com. Um, if you go to that right now, actually, uh, right when you come up, there's like implicit bias disruptor. So it's a couple questions that you can ask yourself about like how you talk in this world and talk to women or talk about women and if you might have some of these biases that you could work on. So um, that's definitely in there and I would, I would go check that out. I think probably tonight, actually, I'm going to, post a, uh, a short film that Fat Tire did um, on my Instagram uh, about the World Triathlon. It's a really short film. It's it like is excellent. Yes, seconds. I saw it. Oh, excellent. I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I posted it in my stories, I think, but I'll post it on my uh, my Instagram page uh, either today or tomorrow. And that's just a really quick, like, three minute and 30 second talk about the triathlon, but also about the gender equality part of what we were trying to accomplish and talk about. Awesome. And do you see yourself writing a book or anything about this? Yeah, maybe I'm not. I'm not a huge writer. I like to take a lot of photographs, but um, people have talked to me about it. And what I probably need to do more than anything is just sit down with someone who can ask questions and get a lot of this stuff on paper, mm-hmm. even in the total raw form. Because as you know, things kind of change over time. Like I said, like the Everest is so much more fun right now than it was like a couple of months ago. It's just because I, you, you tend to remember all the good parts. So. Yeah, I mean, there's a possibility that there's nothing in the word works. Um, I was really happy that Fat Tire was able to support me on this film, and I actually kind of want to do a little bit longer film, if possible, something more in like the 20-minute version. Mm-hmm. So if there's any video editors out there that want to work on a project together, definitely hit me up. I mean, I imagine it's pretty expensive to do all these three things that you did, and um, how, how much of a part did sponsorship play for in that? I had a very nice uh, sponsor, Fat Tire, that um, that pitched in a little bit, but honestly, that was kind of a last-minute thing. And it, as much as uh, I appreciate their support with not only the film but a little bit of a financial uh, support there as well, that was my only sponsor. You know, I've got some you know some loose relationships with some companies um, where I got some deals on things like that. Okay. But uh, generally, I, I paid for this uh, on my own. I, I did a GoFundMe page, which I was a little kind of like back and forth on a little worried about but a lot of people wanted to support me in our community here in Park City we've just got a great great community and so I was able to raise um, I think about it was about $10,000 in that which was incredible but honestly most of this was self-funded yeah I have a buddy um, who climbed Everest and he said it costs like 50 60 grand kind of thing so it's not cheap at all huh? Yeah, I mean, um, honestly, yeah, Everest is anywhere from about forty-five grand to over a hundred grand, and ours was not a hundred grand, but it was on the higher side of that. 
but we also knew that we were going with a company that had all the safety yeah. uh, measures in place to make sure things were good, and um, you get a couple of bonuses like Wi-Fi and stuff like that, which I know sounds silly, but you know we, we wanted to make sure that we went with a company that was experienced, had a good safety record, all those kind of things. I would definitely recommend Alpen Glow Expeditions um, if you're looking at this. It's more money, but you know when you're talking about Everest, I don't think you pinch pennies. You, you make it work one way or another. So that's what we did. I can just keep going, so I better just stop now. Guys, if you want to hear more about Rob Lee, you can check him out on Instagram or go to the foundation page. Rob, thank you so much, and uh, all the best with everything in the future. Hey, really appreciate it, and thanks for reaching out and having me on the podcast. Excellent. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. In the next episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I have the chance to speak with Pablo Espitia. A recent graduate from University in Florida, he decided to embark on a one-year bicycle tour from Portugal to China. With a passion for geography, sustainability, and the environment, Pablo shares his experiences on the road and talks about how things have changed for him and how he has changed and grown throughout this past year. Tune in next week to learn all about Pablo. If you enjoy these podcasts, please subscribe on whatever podcast app you're using. It helps with just getting out there and becoming more visible to others. As well, you could share with friends and other bike tours you know that might not be listening. Just share with them and tell them about it. Word of mouth goes a long way, especially in the biking world. Also, you can check out www.biketouradventures.com to access the podcast, the blogs, and everything else. I'm slowly building up there. And if you have any questions, feel free to drop me an email through the contact or check me out on uh, any of the social media apps, um, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, whatnot. Anyhow, have a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year's, and keep on pedaling. Bye-bye. This podcast was recorded Wednesday, December 11th, 2019. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated and keep on pedaling.